live from the Annex Wealth Management Mobile Studio at Summerfest. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, in for Jeff Wagner, here's WTMJ's Scott Morris. Welcome into the Friday edition of the Wagnerless program. Broadcasting live, as the big voice guy just said, from Summerfest. This is day two of three during week two of three of the 2021 edition of Summerfest, of course. And uh, we hope you can make some time and uh, join us out here at some point. The weather this weekend has been beautiful. It has been exquisite. It is uh, much better than last week. And you could see it yesterday in uh, the attendance. I was here, stayed for about an hour or so after the show, and it was noticeably uh, busier throughout the complex than it was last week uh, for any one of the days. So weather's nice. So it's more like a summer day than it is a fall day. Full show, full show. After uh, 2 o'clock, we're going to talk a little football traditions in the kitchen, so to speak. And uh, I need some advice in that respect. And I know you can come through for me because you have many, many times before. But uh, I'll be honest right up front. I am leaving a majority of this afternoon's show to you because... It is the day before the 20th anniversary of September 11th, and as I've done every show before uh, today, every show this week, spent some portion talking about a particular angle, a particular dimension to 9-11. On a Tuesday, Tuesday we talked about the feeling of safety now versus then. Do you feel safer now versus then? We talked about how do young people, how, how do you talk to young people who weren't alive or too young to remember much of anything of 9-11-2001? We talked about the most enduring image that still lasts for you, that flash imagery in your mind of 20 years ago today. Talked about the the change that America had in terms of how they viewed first responders, firefighters, police, EMTs, post 9-11. That forever changed. And today, the final day of our show week, as it were, and a day before the 20th anniversary, I'd like you to, with me, go back and try to remember the specifics of that day. It is amazing to me how the human mind, how the brain works in that you can forget where you were yesterday at 1.30 in the afternoon. You can completely forget what you had for dinner last night. And yet, in moments of magnitude, like September 11, 2001, in moments of magnitude, our minds lock in on so many vivid details about where we are what we're doing, with whom we are experiencing, whatever that moment might be. Sometimes it's a joyous event. Man, I remember exactly where I was when my wife told me that she was pregnant and we were having our first child. I remember exactly where we were and what we had to eat and the color of the sky when my husband proposed to me. Those are all certainly joyous moments, but similarly, you have to admit, it's sad moments as well. And September 11th, 2001, for those of you who were alive to remember, it was one of the saddest days of all our lives. And so, on this day before the anniversary, 
we're going to explore the where were you when moment. And I'll share my where were you, where was I when moment. And I'm going to invite you to do the same as the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text line is 855-616-1620. That's if you're willing to share and you've always been generous with these stories in the past, this is the day for it. And I'm hoping that by doing this, by sharing these details, it will perhaps jog your memory. Maybe there will be some details you had forgotten about. But as we have the discussion over the next while or so, those details and those memories will come flooding back. 855-616-1620. So we're going to get into that. We are scheduled to be joined in a little while um, by ABC's Ann Compton now retired ABC White House correspondent Ann Compton, who spent 40 of her 41 years at ABC covering the White House. And Ann was part of a small press corps on September 11, 2001, that was with President George W. Bush, was with Bush in Florida, and then, as the day unfolded, making stops, well, throughout the country, quite frankly, before ultimately returning back to Washington, D.C. So we're going to be doing that in just a couple of minutes. As you know, Ann Compton has a way with words, is always able to paint such a vivid picture, and I'm looking forward to getting a few minutes of her time here today. But as we go to break, our own Gene Miller takes a look back, not on September 11, 2001, but on the memories, the stories, and where we were as a nation on September 10th, 2001. You know, history seldom pre-sells major change, certainly not the likes of which the world absorbed 20 years ago. No one saw the September 11th attacks coming, and safe to say we have not been the same since. September 11th, 2001 reshaped the planet in ways we're still working through today. But what was top of mind the day before the planes, the flames, and the horror. WTMJ's Gene Miller uses the stories and some of the sounds from 20 years ago today, September 10th, 2001, to take us back to what the world was like just hours before it would never be the same again. Most of us waking up that morning knew we were in the midst of something special. Summer 2001 will be remembered for many things. For many it was and remains summer of the shark. <laughs> Even though shark attacks weren't all that big of a deal. Good morning, America. We hope you had a nice weekend. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer, and it's Monday, September 10th, 2001. The 2000 presidential election remained top of mind 10 months after the nation's high bench decided its outcome. This morning, there's a, a, a piece this morning in one of the news magazines which really has people buzzing. The first real inside look at the Supreme Court justices as they determined the presidential election. Emotions boiling. It was election eve in New York City where Mayor Rudy Giuliani was a lame duck, unable to run again because of term limits. Michael Jordan spoke of a comeback, not with the Bulls, but instead with the Washington Wizards. And the city that never sleeps was still processing a superstar's musical comeback, one that began the weekend before at Madison Square Garden. An eclectic array of stars came to salute Michael Jackson at Friday's opening night from NSYNC to Destiny's Child. Washington, D.C. woke up that morning to news that really wasn't news. Top of mind that morning in D.C., the club we now call the Washington football team. Proud to be on your side. This is an ABC7 News Update. Good morning, Washington. It's good to be with you. I'm Don Hudson. It is 7.56. The region is abuzz with whispers of a possible quarterback controversy 
We had the web, but it didn't have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. No podcasts either. The iPod was still a month away from its introduction. Most cell phones had lost their antennas. Color screens, though, they still weren't a thing. Sugar Ray might have been on your radio on the way to work or school that Monday morning. This movie is what you might have been talking about at the water cooler once you got there. I am queen of Shinovia. Whoa, whoa. And you are princess. Shut the Princess Diaries, a box office hit, and if you had a flight out of Mitchell International that day, chances are it was with these guys. The best Certainly, if you were New York bound, no TSA, no recombobulation, you got a full meal on the way with honest-to-goodness silverware and a fresh-baked chocolate chip cookie. Milwaukee processing the loss of philanthropist Jane Bradley Pettit. She died Sunday, September 9th at the age of 82. The arena that she and her husband gifted to the city, the Bradley Center, was just 13 years old. Funeral arrangements were still pending. This is World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. Good evening, everyone. We're going to begin tonight with the red-hot battle about keeping the country out of recession. Network Evening News was still a big deal. Peter Jennings and company told us what we had missed during the day before we settled in to watch the Giants and Broncos on Monday Night Football. And what we then called Miller Park. The Brewers were getting whitewashed by the Cardinals 8-0 that night. From New York, the mysterious triangle where hundreds of ships and planes have It's Billy Joe with David Letterman. Millions of us in need of a laugh headed to bed, but first they caught some time with their favorite late night talk show host of choice. No doubt that includes some 3,000 people, many of them from New York would wake up the next morning. Good morning, America. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer, and it's Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. Americans who would not live to see that day's end. A country that would witness the unthinkable, recoil at the unspeakable, and never be the place that it was that day before, Monday, September 10th, 2001. Don't go anywhere. Jeff Wagner is back right after this. Spend your day with Wayne and Larry. Week one of the regular season is finally here. Rodgers and the Pack head to Jacksonville looking for a win against the Saints. Our Packers game day coverage kicks off with WTMJ opening drive Sunday at noon. The home of the Packers since 1929. Aaron Rodgers. Rainbows the yes. right side. Leaping grab. Touchdown. Green Bay. 620 WTMJ. Now, about your house. Eric Brown is the president of Siding Unlimited, your contractor for new windows, roofing, siding, decks, and a whole lot more. He knows about your house. So what do you know, Eric? Watch out. That old deck might cost you more than a weekend of upkeep, painting, staining, or replacing old boards. That old deck on the surface may look awful and quite embarrassing in your pictures. Beyond the surface, that old deck could be a potential hazard waiting to happen. There are many inspection points to know if your deck is ready to support your family and friends for the weekend party or if you've lost trust and need to replace before the big problems happen to you. Many old decks on single-family homes were built by the weekend warrior or the know-it-all do-it-yourselfer. These are weekend projects rushed to be finished by the Sunday evening deadline, maybe even built with a couple cases of beer nearby. Often steps are skipped, process is lost, or even material looked over to finish the job before work on Monday. We find when replacing these types of decks, they were never securely put together to begin with, resulting in the high risk of failure. Not my deck, people say. We use the right stuff. Meanwhile, they never secured or poorly secured the ledger board to the house, didn't use enough or the right hangers, had the wrong lumber to support the size of the deck, or just plain did a bad job. 
all of which can result in trip hazards, flashing issues, or worse, problems supporting the weight load of your loved ones. As you entertain your family and friends, be proud of how beautiful your deck looks, as well as how you can show off the cool inspection report knowing everyone is safe because your deck was built by the right people. Eric and his crews at Siding Unlimited are your go-to contractor here for outdoor decks. Also, replacement windows, roofing, and of course, siding. Take the next step. Check them out at SidingUnlimited.com. Siding Unlimited, siding, and a whole lot more. Back for more, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Scott Warris in for Jeff, taking your calls. Spending a, a majority of our show today devoted to your memories of 20 years ago, and I'm keenly interested to hear your vivid descriptions of the some of the smallest details that you still remember. I'll share my story as we go through the afternoon as well, but I want to hear yours. Let's start on line one. Well, what a call here. This is Luke. Luke is calling us from Japan on the Jeff Wagner Show. Luke... I'd say good afternoon, my time. What time is it in Japan right now, Luke? Hey, it's uh, it's 2.20 in the morning here. Okay. Well, good morning to you, Luke, and I appreciate you listening, and I appreciate you calling. I really do. So you're in Japan on September 10th and 11th, 2021. Take me back 20 years ago. Tell me the your where were you when story. So I was a sophomore in college. So, um, and it was in Florida at a private school called Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Um, most people haven't heard of it, um, but it's a flight school um, where people go if they want to be an airline pilot, although they have other things there, but that's kind of what it's known for. Um, I was a ROTC uh, cadet at the time, so I was planning on being in the Air Force. Um, and that <clears throat> that morning... Um, I was <laughs> not that exciting. I was in bed. I didn't have class that morning, but um, but then my my roommate um, came in and was yelling at me to turn on the TV, um, and so I turned it on. And one of the first images I saw was just the, the was the first tower on fire. And um, it, of course, it was a shock. But also, at that time, like I was uh, one of the staff members of the student newspaper. And most of our staff was from New York City. And so it was just kind of a shocking thing where we were just at a loss. We didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I stayed, I was in my room for probably an hour or so watching everything unfold. Uh, and then once the second airplane hit, um, I just, what I ended up doing was getting, getting dressed and ended up, ended up running to, uh, some of the other classrooms that I knew I had some of my staff members in. Um, and I didn't, and just some of the people, they didn't know what was going on. They were still in class. And, and of course, back then, not everybody had a cell phone. There was no smartphones. No. You know, it was still, it, it was, it's amazing how fast uh, we've, how technology has changed in the last 20 years. You know, there's so many people who didn't know what was going on. So it was literally me and some other people, like, running around the campus like telling people what was going on to include like running into classes where the teachers are like, Hey, <laughs> what are you doing? You know? And it's like, Hey, turn on yeah. a TV, you know? And so yeah. it was just a crazy time. 
the dissemination, Luke, the, the, the way that people uh, learned of it. And that's exactly what, what I'm, I'm also interested in hearing, because the where were you when moment, where were you when you learned of the attack of 9-11? And many people, many people were in a position to hear about it uh, word of mouth whether it was somebody walking into a classroom like you did, whether it was somebody placing an actual phone call. Now you'd, I don't know, send text, group texts and things like that. Placing an actual phone call to others and saying, turn on a television. Uh, This is what's happening. It was, um, yeah, absolutely. It was just a crazy time. Uh, It was so much harder to send information, even back then. Um, right. But for us, an interesting, just, just kind of side note on that, you know, I mentioned, you know, I was at a school that was teaching flying. So in the, in the days and weeks that followed, you know, like everybody thought that like we had trained some of the terrorists. It turns out it wasn't true, but it was a big rumor. And again, yeah. with the way information traveled back then, like you couldn't like before, before long, like. You know, everybody was just assuming that we were, we're the terrorist training school and everything else, and and, and it was just, it, yeah, it was just, it was just a really was a crazy very, time. And, and you yeah, know, and, it was and, a crazy, it was crazy. Luke, thanks for the call, my friend. I appreciate the call from Japan, no less. It was, it was a crazy time. It was a confusing time. The fog of war, right? That's the phrase. And rumors spread quickly, and rumors had to be debunked in 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 those days and really weeks after. So many. See now, Luke speaks about the, you know, the, the the rumors and the the whispers of. Well, did you hear about this place and this location trained the terrorists? And I, I, you remember now. I, I start to remember a lot of the, a lot of the uh, the chatter out there that had to be debunked. But you just didn't know what was true, and what was just gossip, ultimately false. Eight five five six one six one six twenty on the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Where were you when you learned of the attack on 9-11? And I'll ask you to be as vivid in detail as possible as you close your eyes and remember your surroundings on that day. As we go to break, though, many of us learned about the attacks of 9-11 on this radio station as a listener. Listeners. Then our morning show was anchored by John Jagler and John Belmont, and those two men broke the news to many of us that day. In 16 years at WTMJ, I literally said breaking news thousands of times. This was not just a breaking news story, but probably the biggest story we would ever be covering. Guys, excuse me a second. Jim, I'm sorry, I got to interrupt here. We got a big breaking story out of New York. Started out as a normal Tuesday morning. The late Jim Irwin was on the air with his sports commentary. John, we got a big story breaking in New York. The 737 has crashed into the World Trade Center. Things quickly escalated from there. There is a gaping hole right now, and thick black smoke with flames is pouring out. I kept my eye on the TV, and from my time in New York, was able to orient listeners on what was happening where thank goodness we had john belmont there from new york who knew the groundwork knew what the world trade center was knew the lay of the land the north building at the world trade center in new york is gone it has collapsed this is more horrific than any special effects you've seen in films and i was concerned i knew how many thousands of people worked there and could only imagine what the death toll would be i think what gets lost is the total fear the actual terror that it was 
as we did not know what was going to happen next. We got another plane crash, guys. This is uh, from Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh. Large plane crashes in western Pennsylvania. I recall John and I talked about how this must be terrorism. They want you to feel insecure in your own home. They want you well, to it's wonder. Working. That is, I mean, it's that, working. Charlie, it's something for me. And again, just from over the years, I think the most satisfying thing has been just how many people trusted the station. I'm proud of the coverage that we did that day. And we were on almost every radio in Milwaukee that day. We tried to, to provide as much information as we could and, and tried to make it local to how it affected us locally here in Milwaukee and in Wisconsin. And, and I think we did a good job of that. The state capital, the Wisconsin state capital, has actually been shut down, locked down. Scott Warris sitting in for Jeff Wagner. Coming up after the news, we will be joined by veteran ABC News White House correspondent Ann Compton. She spent 40 years of her 41 years at ABC covering the White House. She was on Air Force One on September 11, 2001. She had a vantage point to that day that so very few Americans had and has memories that so very few Americans have, and she's uh, going to carve out a little time for us here in just a couple of moments. Where were you when the world stopped turning? That's it. Scott Warris sitting in for Jeff Wagner. With you until 3 o'clock this afternoon, taking your calls throughout the show today on where were you when you learned of the attacks of September 11th and whether you vaguely remember it because you were a young kid in school or you were the one who told your son or daughter about it. All of you have vivid images and memories of that day. Our next guest uh, has one of the most unique um, memories of September 11th, 2001, because she had a view that so few did, and that is longtime ABC News White House correspondent Ann Compton, who has carved out, thankfully so for me, carved out a couple of minutes of her time, and she joins us here on WTMJ. Hi, Ann. It's good to connect with you again. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, Scott. What an anniversary, 20 years. You know, I think sometimes we see the events of 9-11 with more clarity now than we did when it was happening. What is the most, and this is a, this may be a tough question to answer, what is the most enduring image in your mind from the view you had throughout that incredible day? And it was unquestionably, as we sat in the cabin on Air Force One, flying out of uh, Florida, the president thought he was going back to Washington, but then the Pentagon was hit, so that wasn't going to happen. And as we circled over South Florida, with literally no place for the president to go, no place for him to land, the, the TV screens inside Air Force One, embedded in the front bulkhead wall of each cabin, showed very hazy pictures picked up from TV stations on the ground. And when we saw the first tower buckle and then the second soon thereafter collapse, all we could think of is that there might be 20 or 30,000 innocent Americans at their desks that morning who had just lost their lives. I was watching an interview, and you've done a myriad interviews over these last uh, few weeks and certainly will in the days to come because of the perspective you bring. And we appreciate you bringing that perspective here to WTMJ. But I, I was watching one of the interviews you did, and you spoke about being, 
as we kind of go back a little bit, being in the classroom in Florida, can you share with us how those moments unfolded for you and the interaction specifically you had with then uh, Chief of Staff Andy Card? Absolutely. It was a place of such innocence, and it was a day that was not going to produce any news on education, the president's best issue. He had only been president for less than eight months, and George Bush sat in the, uh, in the classroom listening to the students race through their vocabulary drills, second graders. And when Andy Card walked in, leaned down, whispered briefly, and stepped away, I was stunned. Because nobody interrupts a president in front of any audience, even second graders. What really struck me was the look on the president's face. It was a gravity I had never seen before. And what we know now is what the president knew at that moment. He had already asked the intelligence community, what could Osama bin Laden, what could al-Qaeda do to hurt Americans on U.S. soil? He had asked that question. We didn't know that, but that moment he got his answer. And correct me if I'm wrong, you made a note, a notation in your reporter's notebook about the moment that uh, Card walked over to the president, didn't you? I did. I was so stunned. I wrote down 9.07 a.m., Andy whispers. Now, I had covered Andy in the earlier Reagan administration and the Bush 41 administration. I knew him well. And just a small group, 12 pool reporters and photographers were in the back of the classroom. All the other reporters were in the school cafeteria. So I knew getting to Andy Card would be crucial to know what's going on. And I sidled over to the side of the room, caught his eye. And with my hand, I made the sign of an airplane going down. Andy Card raised his hand and put up two fingers. That's Hmm. the only confirmation we had in that classroom of what all America was watching on television, two planes Hmm. crashing inexplicably into iconic towers in New York. What was the feeling inside Air Force One as it, for several hours, hopscotched its way to points unknown around the country before ultimately getting back to the Capitol at the end of the day? You, you make a good point there. We did seem to circle with no idea where we were going. This was clearly a doomsday scenario moment where the U.S. military opens its playbook and the U.S. Secret Service uh, is in on it. And all they are charged with doing is keeping intact the constitutional, uh, uh, constitutional succession of power elected by the American people. The military protects the civilian government. So I knew that President Bush was okay on the plane, but that protecting him and keeping him away from any other danger would be paramount. And the president, which we couldn't hear, was arguing with Andy Card. He demanded to go back to Washington. He said, that's what leaders do. He's got to go back. Uh, But of course, the, the pilot and the Secret Service and the chief of staff wouldn't let the president. At one point, the plane suddenly rose, notably 10,000 feet. And a Secret Service agent just told me, uh, we just went to 44,000 feet. We're not going back to Washington anytime soon. That's when they thought Air Force One might also be a target.
At any point during that trip, did you fear for your safety and for everyone? The president obviously included on board Air Force One. How real was that fear? Never once during the entire day and the two stops at Barksdale Air Force Base and later at Strategic Command Headquarters in Nebraska, never once did I worry about us or our safety or the uh, the safety of Air Force One, safest place you'd ever, ever want to fly. But I, my heart broke for the people that we could see on the ground running for their lives in New York, for the people evacuating the White House uh, who, who literally ran into the street and had nowhere to go. And, of course, the Capitol building, what a target. Uh, when you look at the Pentagon, it's Pentagon's not as easy to see as the Capitol Dome is. So my despair those hours was for the innocent moms and dads, the people who had simply gone to work every day, that feeling of vulnerability that Americans in our generation, Scott, uh, we had never felt that kind of vulnerability, innocent civilians as targets. Well, you allude to it, Anne, and, and you... You are the consummate professional, but was there any point that day, that night when you finally returned to Washington, was there, was there any point where the gravity, the enormity of the day hit you as Ann Compton, the American, as opposed to Ann Compton with the reporter mindset and, and trudging ahead to do the job that, that, that you knew you had to do? When did personally uh, hit you? I'm glad you asked that, because there was a moment when you're a pool reporter, you are representing the entire White House press corps, and in fact, you're the eyes and ears of the American people. You can't afford to let any emotion pull you away from your job. But when we got back to the White House, I was lucky. I was on Air Force One. I was allowed to stay on board after the refueling. And I got back to Washington on a second helicopter from Andrews Air Force Base to the lawn of the National Monument, uh, the Washington Monument, um, at about 7 o'clock in the evening so that the president could address the nation. When we raced inside the White House and I got to my little, uh, the ABC News booth where we worked, and I opened my laptop and there was an email from my two sons at Vanderbilt University. And their email said, Mom, our fraternity brother Ted Adderley was on the 93rd floor of the first tower. And at that moment, this day of crisis had a human face handsome young man in his first job out of college and i sat down and i cried there was one other moment and you'll appreciate this you and i who do so much radio i went home about midnight that night had to come back into the white house 4 30 the next morning uh to report on what comes next and i set my alarm clock i woke up just before it went off and i looked up at the numbers 429 and I prayed that when it came on, I would hear a weather report, maybe early traffic, a normal day. But, of course, I didn't. I heard the sirens and the reports from ground zero. And when I left the house at 4.30 that morning, 4.45 that morning to go to the White House, overhead, flying over Washington very low, were jet fighters keeping the cradle of democracy safe. That was an emotional moment. 
we talked about this a couple days ago, Ann, and I'll ask you, as, as now, you weren't then, as, as you are now, a grandmother. How do you talk to your grandchildren about this? How would you maybe suggest uh, adults speak to children about this who weren't alive or who were so young they remember nothing of that day? I've thought about that a lot because when I uh, ended my White House career in 2014, I took a fellowship at Harvard, and all these college students sitting around my seminar table were one or two years old. They they had no immediate memory. Now I'm a, I've got I've got four children. They are all parents. I've got eight grandchildren, ages seven on down, and I don't talk to them about this. And they don't even know who Ann Compton is. They know who Nan is, but they don't know who Ann Compton is. They've never seen me on television. So I don't talk to the very young. But when I talk to those who grew up hearing about it, I tell them something that, that, that gives me comfort. America is an amazingly resilient country. We have been through in uh, the 245-year history, the Civil War, uh, horrific race relations and, and crusades. We've gone through just terrible financial collapse. But America re- pulls together and rebounds. And I want my children and grandchildren to see a country where no matter how awful the chaos seems at the moment, America, because it's a democracy, has the ability to pull together and rise again. Mm. Last question for you, Anne, and I know you've got to get ready for another uh, uh, TV hit here in a couple minutes, but you mentioned the notebook, and uh, maybe this is the radio guy in me or the, you know, the, the reporter <laughs> in me, whatever it might be. Do you have, I imagine, that notebook yet? Are there other any personal keepsakes that you have uh, from that day, from that time, maybe in a box somewhere that a day like tomorrow you might open up and just look at to to bring back some of those emotions? Uh, I'm on my way home from uh, a live shot on CNN, and I brought with me the the TikTok that I wrote on board Air Force One and then typed up when uh, when I had time. And I bring that with me. The notebook I used that day where I recorded everything, every moment with a time, Eastern time zone, exactly what happened moment to moment. And it was such an important notebook. I have kept all my notebooks. I've had boxes full of them, but that was so important. I put it in a very secure place so I would never lose it. I can't find it. Oh, no. <laughs> I, it's, oh, no. It's somewhere, it's somewhere safe, but it's even safe for me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. My goodness. Ann Compton, um, 40 years, White House correspondent, one of the most unique vantage points, perspectives of 20 years ago tomorrow, which, incidentally, I didn't realize um, September 10th, a rather significant date for you in your career as well. So it means even more that you join me here on 9-10. Right, right. It was September 10th, 1973, that I signed on the dotted line and started my first day as an ABC News Network correspondent. I was 11 at the time, Scott. And uh, I, <laughs> I chose that very same day when I decided after 41 years that that was enough. And I chose, I said, I will work through the summer and I would like to retire on September 10th, 2014. 
In 48 years after she started at ABC, she joins us on WTMJ. And, Anne, it's always a privilege, and and I appreciate it greatly. I know you're uh, pulled in many directions this week and specifically this weekend. So thank you for joining us here back in Milwaukee. And thank you very much. And everybody, please pause tomorrow and think of all those heroes who worked so hard to bring America back 20 years ago. Perspective unlike any other. Our thanks to Ann Compton for joining us here on WTMJ. We will get back to your calls and your memories. Many of you have been patient. We will get to you at 855-616-1620. Where were you when you learned of America being attacked 20 years ago tomorrow? Scott in for Jeff on WTMJ. Scott Warris broadcasting live from Summerfest. And taking your calls and your memories, and our thanks again to uh, ABC's Ann Compton. You'll you'll uh, probably see her. She is certainly uh, making the rounds because of the perspective she brings, and she was able to carve out a little time for us between uh, the big boys like CNN and NBC and things like that, the big TV folks, and uh, longtime contributor here to WTMJ, many, many, many years on uh, the morning show. Back to the phones here. Many of you have been patient. Uh, we will get to you if you are on the line. Please hold. I want to hear your story. And I would say this, too. Um, I appreciate texts always. It, it means more in, in, in a situation or on a topic, on a discussion like this, to hear from you than it is to read your text. I will do that, certainly. But if you can call, do. Melissa, she called, and she's been patient. She calls from Sheboygan Falls. Hello, Melissa. Thanks for holding. Where were you when you learned of America's being under attack hi um yeah so it was the beginning of my sophomore year in high school which now it's strange to think that was 20 years ago already but um i was on my way to my study hall class that morning and i remember um a friend of mine she passed me in the hallway and and i don't even know how she found out about it but she said to me oh, this plane just hit this building in New York. Isn't that funny? And I looked at her, and I'm like, not not really. But, I, you know, at the time, we didn't know what was right. going on or whatever. So I walked into my study hall room, and I sat down, and the teacher had the one of the network news on because um, at that time, at least the high school that I went to, we had TVs hooked up to the cable in almost every room and um he had it on for a while so and i the image the first image that i remember seeing is they just cut to a picture and it was just all smoke coming from the side of the building um and as the as the time went on through the class you know you're seeing more and more and um it was all anyone could talk about at school all day. And I remember after I left the study hall room, I went to my next class, which was, I think, U.S. History. And so that teacher, like all the teachers had yeah. the news on in almost every room. And um, we were all watching, and we watched um, when the second plane hit, and somehow we got her to keep the TV on because we wanted to see what was going on. And I remember she turned it off the moment um, 
the people started jumping from the building. And I will, I won't forget ever seeing that. That's definitely one of the images that I'll never yep. forget. Is that you know they. And as an adult, now that I, because I was 14 and I didn't know, you know, I barely oh, yeah. knew. Right. You know, Ma- they don't, they didn't Melissa, I, much I'm with you completely. Because it wasn't a thing. No. Mm-hmm. I'm with you, Melissa. M- Melissa, I'm with you because a yeah. couple of days ago, I remember yesterday, we, we talked about enduring images and, and the silhouettes. Yeah. Of these bodies, silo- yeah. I should say, silhouetted up against the, 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 the metallic steel of them, the tower still standing, are images that are still mm-hmm. in my mind. I appreciate your call, Melissa. I appreciate your perspective. Thank you so much for sharing it. Yeah, I mean, imagine. How many of us remember what class we had in 2005? Or if you were in high school in 1999? What'd you have second period in 1999? But if you were in school... In 2001, you remember the class you had. You heard Melissa say, study hall, then U.S. history. And outside of that date, that year, the details surrounding your class schedule 20 years later, we don't remember those things. All kind of calls still on the line. Hold on. Open lines for you. I'm devoting a big chunk of today's show to doing this because it's important that we do this. And as the memories flood back, your memories will start to uh, come back, I imagine, as well. It's funny how one triggers another. Scott Warrison for Jeff, continuing to take your calls. Where were you when? This is WTMJ. Scott in for Jeff. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Mobile Studio at Summerfest, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, in for Jeff Wagner, here's WTMJ's Scott Morris. Good Friday afternoon, hour two of the Wagnerless show that it is. And spending time taking your calls and your remembrances and answering the question, where were you when you learned of the terrorist attack on September 11th, 2001. Back to the phones we go. Let's hear from Dave. Line two, Dave, he's on, uh, in Howard's Grove, and he's been waiting patiently. All right, Dave, where were you when you learned of the attack? Thank you for taking my call, Scott. Um, the Saturday before the attack, my wife and I flew Midwest Express to New Orleans uh, for a week. Uh, she had some jobs, seminars, and conferences to go to. So um, that Tuesday was a free day to roam around. So we were going on a plantation tour. And so she was getting ready for that. And I was watching TV. I'm going to guess 15th, 16th floor of our hotel. And I didn't see the first one hit, but I was watching it, trying to tell her what was going on. And when I, I seen the second one hit, and I just yelled at the top of my lungs to her, oh, my God, what's going on? So she came and watched and we were just horrified, not realizing that we were across the street from the World Trade Center of the New Orleans branch. I did not find that out until a little bit later. We still went on the plantation tour, and we were on the way back when we kept our phones going all we could when we heard that the power had collapsed, the first one. And we just wasn't sure what to do. Of course, the conferences all got canceled after that because people yeah. were from around the whole country at it. We, we didn't know how we were going to get back to Wisconsin. That was going to be an issue. So that how, night, we how long, Dave? Dave, 
Dave, hang on, let me interject. How long before you guys got back? Because, of course, flights were grounded for uh, several days after, and uh, even once they were opened up again, there was still that backlog of flights and whatnot. So uh, how much longer before you got back to town? Well, that night we went down to the lounge to get some eat, and there was a bunch of pilots in there that all got grounded. Yeah. They all had to just fly where they couldn't. They were close to New Orleans, so we talked to them, and they told us we better rent a car and try to drive back because they have no idea. Yeah. So we called Midwest Express right away, and they told us to sit tight for a few days and see what we could do because it was hard to find a rent a car to drive back at the time. Everybody was looking because there was people around the country. Yeah. On that Friday, they called my wife, Midwest Express, and told us to be at the uh, New Orleans Airport, Saturday, they gave us time in the morning. They said there was one flight of Midwest Express that had to land there, and it was going to go to Kansas City, and then from there to Wisconsin. That would be our only hope to get back. Yeah. So we yeah. went to the airport that morning, and I'm so eerie because you walk in, one door opens, everything, all the gates pulled down on everything. Nobody walking around. We get to our gate, and the ticket they gave me said I was in row 21, so I'm thinking, okay, maybe halfway back. It wasn't the very back. It was the Milwaukee Bucks airplane. So they, a lot of these rules were taken out because the legs are so long, I guess, or whatever. Okay, sure. So we were able to fly back. We were able to fly back on Saturday, the following Saturday. Okay. Yeah, it, quiet a lot of... Coming back. There was a lot of... There was a no lot service. of... Nope. Yeah, a lot of eeriness. Thank you, Dave. A, a, a lot of eerie feelings. I'm sorry. I'm going to try to get in as many people as possible here. But a, a lot of eerie feelings, a lot of eeriness simply, um, you know, uh, permeated the day so much that day and in, in, in the days after. Hmm. 855-616-1620 on the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Back to the phones, back to the text screen as well in just a moment as we go to break. One of the former voices on this radio station, in fact, for 23 years, Charlie Sykes. He was on the air the morning of September 11, 2001, and he reflects back on some of the images and memories still vivid 20 years later. A huge Anybody who's ever shroud of dust and smoke just enveloping lower Manhattan. I'm, I'm, try, I'm trying not to overstate it, but this country has never sustained an attack as grave as this one. It almost brings to mind Pearl. Except that I remember that morning so well. This is Charlie Sykes, and I was preparing to do my show that day, and I remember not having anything particularly compelling to talk about. I think that Michael Jordan was preparing to retire again, and then we got the first report of the plane hitting the tower. The 737 has crashed into the World Trade Center. And at first, I'll be honest, I didn't fully understand the magnitude of what had just happened, and I continued to do show prep. And then, of course, the second plane hit. Oh, my God! Another plane just... A huge fireball has just exploded. This is John Belmont at WTMJ. That's impossible to overstate how horrific it is. The president would be justified, and I think Congress would virtually unanimously go along saying that a state of war exists. Because if this is not an act of war, what is? We do know that... And I remember standing and trying to make sense of it. You know, you know, sometimes things happen and you don't realize until afterwards uh, how significant they were or, or what it would do to history. That wasn't the case on September 11th. That moment, we understood that America was under attack. We understood that this was a dividing point, that nothing would ever be the same again. 
Rivera sitting in for Jeff. And we go right back to the phones. This show is yours. Well, it's always your show. But uh, never more so than on a day and on a situation, a topic, as it were, like this. Jim is in Cedarburg. We talk a lot about the schools that day, and uh, he brings a perspective of being, well, the leader of a school. He was a principal, weren't you, Jim? Good afternoon. Hi, Scott. How are you? So, okay, your, your, uh, your answer Scott. to the where were you when question. Yeah, I was the principal of a little Catholic grade school up there in Sheboygan Falls, or one of your previous callers was a middle schooler, apparently. Anyway, and um, at that time, my wife also was a flight attendant for Midwest Express. So it kind of ties in with that one. But anyway, um, I heard the, I was backing out of my driveway. I heard the first one on your radio station hit the building. I know that's not right from for being in the airline industry. So I ran in to see what was going on quick, and then I called her down because she was scheduled to fly, and she came down, saw the TV, and that's why we're watching the second one hit. So we knew right away that it was more than just an accident. So I quickly realized I got to get to school because it was ready to start, and I didn't want news getting out to all the elementary kids of what was going on. So I gathered the teachers together quickly, and I we had a powwow, and, um, and I just figured I don't want these kids. I know history appearing before me. I don't know what's happening, but I don't want them to be traumatized. So we just decided we're not going to tell the kids what's going on. We want to try and keep it away from them all day long, which is quite a task for elementary school, but they managed to do it. The teachers were awesome at it. Um, one of the teachers... Her brother was in one of the buildings, so that added another element that we weren't prepared for. But uh, she managed to keep her composure. She just tried all morning long to get a hold of her brother, who apparently he was on one of the lower floors. He managed to get out. Oh, wow. So that was a big relief to the entire parish community, to her and the school community and whatnot. So it was really, you know, it was a day I'll never forget, constantly running into the parish office, so I could at least give the teachers updates on the hour and, you know, uh, make sure that... Jim, let me ask you this. carried out a normal day, yeah. Did you have parents calling, asking to pick up their kids, uh, or did some parents just show up and, and, and take them home and pull them out of class? Was that happening as well? There wasn't, like, a flood of that. There may have been a few. You know, the, the, parent, the school secretary... No, knew what we were doing, obviously, she's part of it, part of the team. And she would tell the parents, you know, our perspective, and nobody rushed. You know, nobody, people didn't really even know what was all happening or when it was going to end, if you remember. You know, Shanksville was probably an hour later, and, you know, yeah. people around here were wondering if Chicago was going to get hit, even, you know. And so they didn't know the extent of it, but people weren't really rushing to pull their kids, at least not out of our school. I can't speak for the other sure. ones, but... Um, Sure. I'm glad we did it the way we did, and right away, the, um, the teachers were strategizing with the kids. What can we do to help out? Being, you know, here in Wisconsin and Little Sheboygan Falls, and this is in New York, and they came up with have a car wash and send proceeds to whatever they may need there. So within that was on, a, I think it was on a Thursday, if I remember right, but I'm not positive. Maybe a Wednesday, Tuesday, but by Tuesday that weekend. Oh well, by that weekend, I know we ran a um, a car wash. And they, that little school raised six thousand dollars that they sent oh. off to wow. survivors, wow. and it was just a great, great community building 
it wasn't hard, you know, it wasn't hard for the community to chip in to do that. And it was really a wise use of, um, you know, teaching kids the right thing to do in a wrong, you know, really terrible situation. And it diverted their, you know, their apprehensions or fears. Yeah. Well, you know, Jim, I, I appreciate your perspective and, and good on you for how you uh, led your school and your, your staff that day and, and how in the subsequent days and weeks you were able to turn it and, and uh, for those young kids who didn't realize what was going on, uh, find something of value for them to get out of it. I appreciate it, Jim. Thank you so much for giving us a call. Um, there are all kinds of perspectives and all kinds of stories. And obviously... For me and for many of you listening and those who have called to go through it and realize that your loved ones are safe, we're safe, we're nowhere near Washington or, or New York or, or Pennsylvania, they were not traveling in the air that day, and it can bring a chilling uh, to one's soul, and yet... If you had someone who was in one of those cities or on a flight that day, it brings a whole, I can only imagine, brings a whole different level of gravity to that situation. And when we come back, we will speak with a woman who lost her sister in the attacks of September 11th. 2001. As we continue, Scott Warris in for Jeff Wagner. More in a moment, including that story on WTMJ. Continuing our discussion, Scott Warris in for Jeff. And taking your calls and your remembrances, answering the question that I always find so fascinating. It's my book idea one day. If I ever do write a book, the Where Were You When answers. Okay. Let's go back to the phones here. Barb, who is calling us this afternoon from Williamsburg, Virginia, joins us with a, um, a story that it was all too common. Barb, thanks for making this call, and I'll just set the table by asking, where were you when America was attacked? Well, thank you for taking my call. I'm actually in Whitefish Bay with my brother, where I needed to be for this weekend, and I'll explain why. Um, on September 11th in 2001, I was teaching school, and our guidance counselor went around to all the different classrooms to let us know what had happened, um, and doing it in a very private way so the students wouldn't find out. And I know you had asked the previous caller about parents, and we had some parents who came to the school to pick up their children and others who did not. But, you know, we were going through the day, and the other teachers and myself were kind of looking at each other like, wow, what are we going to do, and what does this mean to our country? Um, and my youngest son, who was at William & Mary at the time, called me and said, Mom, isn't Aunt Sue in New York this week? And I said, I think she is. Why don't you try to call her? My sister lived and worked in Chicago, but she was on a business trip in New York City. And she always had meetings in Midtown. And this particular day, she needed a larger conference room. And so they sent her to the World Trade Center. We didn't know this at the time. So all day long, I was calling one son and then the other son, and I tried to call my mom who lived in Wheaton, Illinois, and we were going back and forth, and I was trying to teach. And um, finally, about 5 o'clock, my brother was able to get a hold of Sue's company in Chicago, who called the San Francisco office, who called New York, because Marsh McLennan had closed down all their offices. And we found out that, in fact, Sue was in the World Trade Center, she was on the 99th floor when the plane hit on the 96th floor, and 
all we knew was that she was there. Um, the next day, I stayed home from school and tried to call hospitals and find out. I was hoping she was one of those people who had gotten out and was walking around, maybe had amnesia or something. Um, the next day, I went back to school, and I will tell you, I have never felt so much love and support from the students, their parents, other teachers, because by that time, I knew where she had been, but we didn't know for sure what had happened to her. And then with not hearing anything by Friday, I flew to Chicago to be with my mom and my brother. And um, a week and a half later, they actually found her. And that started the whole six years of proceedings to try to settle what would be her estate. That, you know, it was really amazing to not know that she was there. And when I went to her condo in Chicago, I was listening to her voicemail messages and, and people were saying, Sue, do you know where so-and-so is because she's in New York and I haven't heard from her, not knowing that Sue was there and, and she, was, she was gone. Who, Barb, was the person that ultimately told you uh, of her passing or, or when she was found. Do you remember that moment, and would you be willing to share that with us? Well, my brother's the one who heard that she was in the building. And then, um, now, I'm not even exactly sure. I think it was somebody from her company who did contact my brother, and then he, you know, let us know and let my mom know. The, the saddest thing was this happened on a Tuesday. And in 1976... My brother got a phone call and had to go to be with my mother again, driving from Whitefish Bay to Wheaton to tell her that my dad had been killed by a drunk driver. And again, in 2001, he had to drive from Whitefish Bay to, to Wheaton to be with my mom um, that, that night. So um, I can't say enough things about my brother and the courage he had to, to, to do that. But, you know, when we found out, then we couldn't get out of town, which was in itself a real problem. You know, I called trains and everything else, and I thought, well, if I drive, it'll be 14 hours, and I didn't want to do that. Um, but I do remember that night talking to both my boys, and I called my son's golf coach at William & Mary because he was on the golf team, and Scott spent that night with Ryan or with Tim. And then Ryan was at Hampton Sydney College in Virginia, and I called the dean of students and the, the chaplain's wife, and both of those men went over to be with Ryan, so my boys were covered. But then Ryan drove home. It was about an hour and a half drive from his college after he was with um, the, the men from his school, and he wasn't coming, home, wasn't coming home, so I started driving to look for him because I was so worried I didn't want him to get in a car accident. Luckily, I found him about you know, five miles from my house and followed him home. But um, my mom found out the police actually came to her house about, I guess it was two weeks later, um, to let her know that they had found the body. And, you know, that's how we knew. Up until we had a birth, uh, death certificate, we, um, I, I had power of attorney, and then my son took over as executor. Yeah. But just the whole thing. And I you. remember going to her condo in Chicago. Let me just say this story. I was so sure. worried about her credit. I didn't want her to walk in the door and have bad credit for not paying her bills on time. So I did my best <laughs> to find her bills and pay them because I wanted her to walk in that door so badly and it didn't happen. Um, 
So what would you like, because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people listening to you right now, Barb, and many of them are not connected to September 11th the way you and your family are and always will be. What message would you like to share with everyone listening right now as they go through their day today and obviously tomorrow especially? I think the biggest thing is to not take anything for granted. Do not take time with family for granted. Do not take relationships for granted. Um, Look at every day as a gift from God and take advantage of it and be grateful for it. I mean, I think about Sue and I think about my dad, and rather than feeling sorry for myself, I mean, I went through a period of that, of course, but it's more, look at how lucky we were to have had Sue for 48 years instead of poor me. I'm, I'm sorry she missed out on so much for, you know, with her nephews and their kids and graduations, weddings and all that, but I know she was there in spirit. But the biggest thing is to not take one thing for granted because life is so short and we don't know when our time will be that we will leave this earth. But we have to know that relationships are everything. On the way out, what is your favorite memory of Sue? I only have a couple of moments, Barb, but what what about Sue puts Um, a smile on your face? Well, she and I shared a bedroom. We shared, She was 11 and a half months younger than me. And I do remember Sue had a way of getting out of doing the dishes. She would always say she had to go take a bath. So I was the one that ended up having to do the dishes almost every night. So that was one fond memory. And also how much she loved her nephews. She did everything in the world she could for her nephews. And she left a beautiful legacy for them and all the people who knew her. So I'm so proud of her. And I'm so glad she was my sister. Thanks for calling, Barb. I appreciate it very much. All the best to you and your family. Thank you so much. Bye. Mm -hmm. Thank you. For a lot of people, the uh, images and the memories fade away over time. It's only natural. We're only human. But God, I hope we remember the people like Barb, whose lives were forever changed in a deep, deep way. And while the images and maybe memories and some of the feelings we had that day aren't what they were 20 years ago, please at least just spend a moment tomorrow thinking of people like Barb and the thousands of others that were impacted in the deepest way. 2,606 people died in the World Trade Center and in the surrounding area on September 11, 2001. Barb's sister Sue was one of them. Have you forgotten how it felt that day? See your homeland. We will uh, continue this till 2 o'clock. Uh, we'll change gears a little bit there uh, after the 2 o'clock news. And um, I can't thank Barb enough for sharing that. Let's go back to your stories. Where were you when? Let's go to uh, Arliss. Arliss is in Fox Point, a unique perspective on September 11th, 2001. Go ahead, Arliss. Hi. I was an employee of We Energies on September 11th, and obviously I was working that morning. 
However, in the next two days, particularly for me, it was on the 13th. I worked at the Lee Energy's call center because the company had, between the time of the attacks and the morning of the 13th, they had offered up a 1,000 phone lines at the call center that normally uh, takes outage reports and that kind of thing for the utility company. But they offered up the call center to the Department of Justice. And so the company asked for volunteers, and we were sent to the Pewaukee Call Center and given a very intense training. I think it was two hours of training, and then uh, we were sent out to the floor, and we were given flags that if we couldn't handle a call uh, based on the preliminary training we'd taken, we should raise the flag. And I remember Arliss, raising the let flag. Let me interject. Let, let, me, let me interject, Arliss. So you were taking calls from people uh, calling in, about in what specifically? Okay. Looking in for New loved York ones, City. looking for people who are missing? Yes. The Department of Justice, Vict- Victims of Crimes Family Assistance Call Center Hotline, funneled all the calls that were coming in to the call center. Now, I don't know if we were the only call center in the country, but I know how I worked the phone lines. So assume that I had Department of Justice people trained uh, us for two hours. We went on the floor, and I worked for two hours. And during that time, I remember a young boy, I'm assuming he was a teenager, calling, asking about his mother. And he, he was so, so emotionally charged that I felt I couldn't handle the call. And I raised my flag and immediately a Department of Justice person came over and handled that one particular call. But the thing I wow. remember is that We Energies volunteered those phone lines they paid all of us to sit there for days and take those phone calls. Now, each person only did a couple of hours on the line, but let me tell you, with the emotional charges that were coming in at us with every phone call, two hours was a really long time. Oh, I can, uh, Arliss, God bless you for doing that. I can only imagine uh, that call, which obviously that was 20 years later, and it's it still resonates with you and and so many of your colleagues who did the, who who did that and, and talked to people and and were brought into their grief and their emotion and you never forget those voices. Thank you, Arliss. I appreciate your perspective on this. To Genesee, it's Steve on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Steve. Yeah, how are you today? I'm okay in a reflective mode. That's kind of how we all are right now, I would say, this week. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, so my perspective is, is kind of twofold. Uh, uh, I was in Rolls-Royce. I was at Rolls-Royce in Indianapolis uh, doing business that morning, and we were in the lobby waiting for our, uh, our, our 
called the guy to uh, come to the lobby, and all of a sudden the, we saw the airplanes hit the tower. And uh, being a guy that traveled a lot, I immediately rented a rental car because I didn't have one. And then uh, all the planes got grounded, and eventually our CEO landed in Indianapolis, and then we drove home very somberly. And uh, so the, the neat part of, of what I'm, I'm going to say is that uh, the company that I just retired from, Metal Tech, out in Waukesha, uh, our foundry in St. Louis, ended up making the 184 benches for the Pentagon Memorial. Oh, my. I've been there. I've, I've been there about 10 years ago or so as part of an honor flight. In fact, the honor flight that uh, WTMJ just took part in a couple of weekends ago uh, makes sure that uh, it makes a stop. So th- those I, I can picture the benches right now, Steve. I, I remember it vividly. Um, your company made those. That's... That yes, memorial yeah, is yeah. Uh, is very moving. Isn't it very humbling? It's uh, yes. kind of very similar to the Vietnam uh, memorial. It's mm-hmm. so uh, so somber, but so kind of beautiful. Uh, yep. uh, the reflecting pools and the lights at night. So we we made those 184 benches down oh, yes. in uh, St. Louis, and uh, we became a partner with the engineers and and uh, we, we you know yeah. our, our management team went out to the dedication. Uh, I think it was 2008 when they were dedicated. So, just a mm-hmm. very neat thing to that a uh, 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 Wisconsin-based company, even though it was our foundry in St. Louis that made them, uh, was part of uh, our, mm-hmm. one of the memorials. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate your call. That's something you can be proud of. And yes, the the uh, 9/11 memorial in Washington at the Pentagon is something that, uh, if you haven't yet been, is something you need to go and visit as we go to break well the voice you normally hear from noon to three on wtmj here in 2021 was a voice you heard from noon to three on wtmj 20 years ago jeff wagner reflects back on how 9-11 shaped his life and his for that matter radio career in some respects it seems like forever in other respects it seems like just yesterday Apparently, a plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center here in New York City. I was at my home in Whitefish Bay preparing the show. I had the television on, and I saw the first plane that flew into the World Trade Center. I heard a boom walked up, and there was a big ball of fire. A lot of people thought it might have just been an aviation incident. Oh, another one just hit. Something else just hit. A very large plane just flew directly over my building, and there's been another collision. Can you see it? I yes. Can see it After the second oh plane flew into the second tower, we knew it was something incredibly different. And now you, you have to move from talk about a possible accident to talk about something deliberate. 799-1234-799-1620. When I ended up getting on the air, we were still in the fog of war. We were still trying to figure out what exactly happened. Going into war. I remember taking phone calls from people and just the absolute shock that we all had that our country could be exposed in this fashion. I heard the second plane, you know, on the radio crash into the World Trade Center. I have to tear up because I realize that the world has changed and it's, it's no longer that feeling of security that I had as, as a kid in the 80s. Now I know what my parents went through at Pearl Harbor. I think the difference is that... 9-11 shaped this country in some ways for the good, in some ways for the bad. But I can also remember that in many respects, it, it helped shape my career as a talk show host. This was something that changed the way we looked at the world, then and forever.
have a few minutes here after two o'clock we're going to switch gears in the final hour of the show i do have something special though at the end of the show uh, about an hour from now so be listening for all of it certainly so i'm going to do my best uh, we have a couple of calls i'm going to round things out with so i'm going to ask you to be as uh, as uh, as succinct as possible just so i can maximize our time we start in fiendsville chuck joins us and uh chuck has a very unique story he shared it with us once before on wtmj and he's been kind enough to connect with us again to share his where were you when story from 9 11 of 01 hi chuck go ahead my friend hi scott yes uh 9 11 2001 i was on a one-day trip uh to new york uh working for a.o smith at the time and i Flew into New York that morning. We um, were flying in along the East River towards LaGuardia. Everybody in the plane suddenly looked to the left, and there was smoke coming out of the uh, the North Tower and realized that a plane had struck. We thought it was just a little plane, didn't realize what was going on. Uh, this was Midwest Express. This was the last flight to land at LaGuardia that day. We learned right after that that the second plane had struck the tower. The... Uh, guy that I was meeting with wanted to uh, go up and look. We couldn't get the chance to see it because the uh, guards were, let, were not letting us on. We wanted to um, get into Manhattan. We couldn't do that either. They literally had us drive up the uh, off-ramp to get off the freeway. We ended up on Long Island. I ended up staying there for two and a half days because I couldn't get a flight out. I couldn't get a car. Uh, I basically was living with our, with our salesperson at the time. Finally got a rental car on that Friday and drove from New York to Milwaukee. But um, it was it was an amazing experience to uh, to witness that. Uh, it was an absolutely gorgeous day, much like today. And um, you wouldn't would realize the vantage point, Chuck. The vantage point you had of being in an airplane, looking out an airplane window over Manhattan, and seeing the towers burning. That is one of the most unique perspectives that any American could have ever had. It wasn't. We didn't realize, you know, the captain couldn't come on and tell us what was going sure. on. We didn't, we didn't know what was happening until after we landed. Um, and, and something I read about years later, and I don't remember this, you know, certain things you don't remember, evidently, the captain had to take an, an evasive maneuver during our landing to avoid the second plane that was headed for the other wow. tower. Yeah, so wow. uh, it, we didn't realize how close we came to uh, the disaster. But uh, wow. yeah, it was a unique experience, something that I will that certainly I'll never forget. And thanks for sharing it with us again, Chuck. I do appreciate it very much. Let's uh, head to Oak Creek. Jeremy... A couple of moments, Jeremy. You've been patient to hold. I want to get your story real quickly, if you could. Share your remembrances of 20 years ago. Yeah, on September 11, 2001, I actually got my driver's license. Oh. And I took my road test that day. And the systems for the Department of Transportation went down. And they told me I had to wait to get my license, and I just passed my road test. We had to wait like three, about three hours at the DMV for them to get back up so I can get my license. Wow, wow, and and uh, 
What was the mood inside that building that day? I mean, I imagine, were, were there TV monitors on? Were, were, were people watching it? What was the, the vibe inside yeah, that facility? Real, like, somber. Like, yeah. everybody's trying to figure out what's going on. And like you said, we didn't have uh, any Facebook or anything back then, so everybody's just trying to, nope. trying to figure out what's going on. Wow. Yeah, it was pretty, it was yeah. pretty intense. I would say. Jeremy, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And one last call here before the uh, the news break. Jacksonville, Florida. John on WTMJ. Hello, John. Hello. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm okay. My, uh, Your my remembrance. Memories, my memories were vivid. I was on board the USS Enterprise. We had just uh, left the Persian Gulf and we were getting ready to come home. And it was evening time. And we got word that uh, a plane had hit one of the towers, that it had lost power, and possibly there was an aviation accident. And so we were sitting in the shop, turned on CNN, and all of a sudden we saw the second plane hit. About five minutes after watching that, the TV screen went blank, except for flight up flight deck. There were planes that were turning on the flight deck. We heard the engine shut down. Uh call came over to 1MC for all officers to report to their award rooms. rest of the crew stand by for a word from the Admiral. Um, the Admiral came on. He told us ex- what, what he had was that both towers had been hit by planes. We didn't know about the Pentagon, but we were told about the Pentagon being hit. We were told another plane had crashed in Pennsylvania, and uh, we were waiting for word from CENTCOM what we were going to do next, and next thing you know, we turned around and we headed right back up into the Persian Gulf, and we were there with our sister carrier, Carl Vinson, and we were there to launch the first retaliatory strikes when they happened a couple of weeks later. And that was my remembrance of 9-11. Hmm. You knew war had come to our shores. You, you knew that your life and your career path, at least moving forward, John, was forever changed. I feel that's safe to say. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. John, thank you for your service, and thank you for uh, calling from Jacksonville this afternoon and sharing your remembrance of September 11th, 2001. Look, I spent the first two hours of the show doing this, and um, it's important that we do that, and, and we did what we just did. And every year, it always amazes me, every year I do this on the date or as close to it as possible, and the stories, the imagery the details and as we hear there a man on the uh, enterprise usn enterprise headed to the middle east a woman who lost her sister in the world trade center attack and another man who was on an airplane over manhattan as the towers burned you never know the stories you never know the voices that you're going to hear when we do this every year but there's a reason we do it, and as long as I'm on the radio at WTMJ, I will always make time on 9-11 or as close to it as possible for the question, where were you when? News is next, and then the final hour on a Friday of the Wagnerless Show. I'm Scott Warris, WTMJ. 
Live from the Annex Wealth Management Mobile Studio at Summerfest, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, in for Jeff Wagner, here's WTMJ's Scott Morris. It is the final hour of a Wagnerless week. He's back on Monday. Do you know who just walked by the mobile studio? Now, I could be wrong. I think I found Amelia Earhart. Amelia Earhart is at Summerfest. That is one of the many reasons to come by Summerfest. I'm serious. You come to Summerfest, you will see Amelia Earhart. Trust me. Trust me on that one. It's like a Where's Waldo situation. No, she is here. She has been discovered, uncovered, and come out and see Amelia Earhart. I don't know what stage she's playing, but she is here. Okay. It is a Friday. Football season is here. By the way, was there a win last night from a Packers fan or just a football perspective? Because whoever won that ball game last night, the official opener of the season, whether it was Tampa Bay or whether it was Dallas, you knew today was going to be a diatribe of, oh, Brady, he did it again. It was going to be the gushing and the the uh, fawning over Tom Brady if he won, which he did, or it was going to be the Dallas Cowboys, Dak Prescott. They are back, baby. And so here we sit in Wisconsin, and it was going to be a no-win situation, quite frankly, because it was going to be nauseating whether it was a Cowboys love fest after one week or whether it was going to be the continued adulation of Tom Brady after one week. We were in a no-win situation, and it happens to be the Brady one and whatever. But the NFL season begins. I know we have Packers and Saints on Sunday from Jacksonville. The Packers take on the Jacksonville Saints on Sunday. And with the return of football comes a return of your favorite football food. Now, I admit, and I have admitted, and I will admit, I'm not a chef. I, I don't cook primarily because I'm just really lazy in that regard. That's the reason why I don't. But I know plenty of you do. And there are certain things that you would recommend I try, I have, I make, I do during a football Sunday. And I thought, well, Scott, if you are ever going to give it a shot, if you're ever going to at some point along the uh, road that is the NFL season, if you're going to actually tailgate or you're going to have something that you need to consume during a football game, I could come to you and you could tell me. And others will probably take notes as well. So for just a couple of minutes here on a football kickoff Friday of the Wagnerless Show, I thought, give me the football food staple that you would recommend I try or I implement into my weekends, well, for the next, quite frankly, at least 17 weeks. Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is 855-616-1620, 855-616-1620. Very simple. It can be something elaborate. It can be something ornate. It can be something that you and your family have eaten at every single Packers game, be it in the uh, parking lot or at home. It's something you have had 
every single game for as far back as you can remember. Oh, we, Scott, we always have goulash because my grandmother had goulash every Sunday and the Packers played, and that is our food tradition. Maybe it can be something more simple. Scott, I'll tell you what. The best potato chip that you can have and it's not the name brand, it's, I don't know, some off-brand potato chip that you have found, and that is your thing. There are traditions, there are staples, there are things you will do, let alone consume, every Packers Sunday. We have our first Packers Sunday in just a couple of days, and so I need something from you. I need something from you. Your football food staple. You have one. I know you do. What is it? 855-616-1620. Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 855-616-1620. Odds are pretty good. Other people around you could be taking notes as you offer your football food staple. So what is it? 855-616-1620. We'll find out next. Scott. Warris in for Jeff Wagner on a Friday, a football Friday afternoon. More from Summerfest in a moment on WTMJ. Zach Brown Band tonight. They are the headliner at the American Family Insurance Amphitheater with Gabby Barrett. Don't know who that is, but I'm sure they're very good. I look, I, I don't, I don't mean to to cloak my ignorance of music, folks. But I know that song even. See, if I said it yesterday, if I know the song, <laughs> if I if I know the song, then it's something. I try, I try. Scott, you don't know food, you don't know music. All right, how do we only have one call on this? One call, one call. We're in Wisconsin. We like food. Are you kidding me? All right. Fair enough. 855-616-1620 on the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Sell me on your football food staple. It's not a football Sunday without it. Brian is in Kenosha. He joins us on the Wagner List Show. Hello, Brian. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me on. All right. Sell me on your food. So, uh... I'm pretty sure my uh, good buddy Bill is probably listening to this as well. But uh, every Packer game, we like to grill up something a little bit different. Each each year, we come up with our own recipes. But uh, what's been really sticking is uh, venison stuffed jalapeno poppers on the grill. Venison stuffed jalapeno poppers grilled on the grill. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you, you, wrap a, you, you take a jalapeno, chop it in half. Stuff some venison in there, a little bit of cream cheese, wrap it in bacon, and throw it on the grill. How long on the grill? Uh, about 10, 15 minutes. Okay. How, how many years have you <laughs> yeah, guys had this? How, how many years have you had this as a tradition? Uh, it's been, uh, I'd say the better part of eight years now. Um, everyone's, I mean, I grew up uh, watching the Packers my entire life, and there's been a bunch of staples throughout the throughout the history of that, but uh, I would say uh, coming up with new stuff is definitely one of the uh, newer traditions we have. Hmm. Whose idea was it? Was it yours or your buddy's? 
Uh, it was kind of a collaboration because we both do a lot of uh, we both do a lot of like uh, you know experimenting with you know smoking different meats and grilling different stuff and uh, sure yeah it just kind of came about so all right venison stuffed jalapeno poppers and Brian and his crew will be having it on uh, Sunday afternoon thanks for the call Brian enjoy the jalapeno poppers on Sunday uh, let's see to the text line here eight five five. 616-1620, Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, of course. Kent from Pewaukee. He says, pickle anything. Okay. Eggs, beets, sausage, fish, ham hocks, and beer. Interesting. Jeff from Ingleside. Nacho cheese, Doritos, and French onion dip. See, I, you know what? I'm a sucker for a good French onion dip. I am. I mean, if it's homemade, that's great. That's fine. But I'm... I'm no uh, French uh, onion dip snob. I am more than happy to simply go to the grocery store and purchase the container, the pre-made French onion dip. I don't mind uh, that at all. Scott, a locally owned El Rey corn tortillas and salsa. Hmm. Yeah, it doesn't be something that's you know created like uh, uh, like uh, Brian's was. It can be something that is just something you, you go, you buy it, you always have it. I have taken, um, you know, like these jars of, of nacho cheese, right, that you can buy on shelves, off of shelves. And uh, then you'd buy the salsa. And this is very simple, I know, but I'm a simple man. And you combine the two into a larger bowl, and you warm it up a little bit. And then you kind of have this, you know, melted cheese salsa dip type concoction. It's a simple thing, but I've, I've come to appreciate it, the simple things in life. Taco dip is a... St- you know, I was late to the taco dip party. I really was. I could count on one hand the number of times I had ever consumed taco dip up until eh, maybe the last five years or so. And suddenly, there's ta- I think it was because it took me a while to come around on olives. And it's tough to find... It's tough to find a good taco dip that does not have olives. And so, you know, if you're picking stuff off, I... I don't have time for that at all. Uh, got a sweet tooth. 920 says football-shaped cutout sugar cookies. Frosted brown with green and yellow. The brown ball, the green stripe, the yellow strings, little GBP lettering. That's good. That's good. Oh, cheese cracker using her sausage platter. Always. See, that is a simple, again, simplicity is, is uh, advantageous for me. That is a simple thing that goes a long way. Right? How hard is it to buy some cheese, some crackers? Stop at using her. You slice up some sa- some sausage. Where's the sausage? And there you go. You're set for life. Ah, it's never a Packers game until my uncle has the sausage out. Then it's a football Sunday. Okay, there you go. It's good stuff. Now, there are many of you bringing and uh, suggesting some of... Uh, well, I would classify them in the sweets. And so the 262, I'm a chocoholic through and through, so I enjoy snacks with chocolate and peanut butter and dark chocolate crisps from Trader Joe's that mimic potato chips, only they're all chocolate. Whew. I don't think I've ever been to a Trader Joe's. No, I never have. Huh. Nico. Nico from Sockville, Texas, says, My family is Chilean. And we have Chilean hot dogs called completos. So it is a hot dog frank with avocado spread on it, 
mayo and tomatoes on top. The best hot dog you'll ever have. Wow. <laughs> this is getting good. You're good. You're coming through for me. And I appreciate it. Football Friday before uh, the kickoff of the NFL season in its truest form, at least. I know it started last night on Sunday afternoon. Scott Warris broadcasting live from Summerfest. More in a moment on WTMJ. Whoa! Nelly! At the U.S. Cellular Connection stage tonight, 10 o'clock. The late Keith Jackson's favorite group. You know the funniest, um, or one of the funny stories, we were talking about uh, Packers kicking off. <laughs> kicking off on Sunday against the Jacksonville Saints. And uh, Rob Domofsky had this. He put this out yesterday. You may have seen it. If not, though. Aaron Rodgers gets a chuckle out of useless information on Saints pick for locale versus Packers. Now, we know it's supposed to be New Orleans, Hurricane Ida has uh, just put New Orleans in a, in a position where uh, it's probably not the best for them to be uh, hosting a football game right now or maybe for the next few weeks. So they're going to be in Jacksonville. And apparently there were other cities, well, we know there were other cities that were options before the Saints, and the Saints got to pick. It's not like they consulted with the Green Bay Packers, hey, where would you guys like to play this football game? Because if they did... They probably would have said, bye, why don't you come up to Lambeau and we can play right here. Now, according to NOLA.com, the Saints wanted, first of all, to play this game in Florida because Aaron Rodgers has a 3-4 and four career record in the state of Florida as a starter. They picked Jacksonville over Tampa Bay and Miami because, as the report said, you ready for this? They had a staff member look up Green Bay flights on Expedia and compare the difference in costs and itineraries between Jacksonville, Miami, and Tampa. So why did they pick Tampa? I'm sorry, why did they pick Jacksonville? Because Jacksonville proved most difficult to get to and most costly. Really? Really? That much behind? I mean, look, I know football coaches will do what they can to gain an advantage, gain a home field advantage. And if you're not on your home field, what other kind of advantage can we have here? But to realize that, first of all, well, let's play in Florida because Aaron Rodgers is only a, a three and four quarterback all time in the state of Florida. Okay, well you got three cities from which you we can go to Jacksonville, we can go to Tampa Bay, we can go to Miami. How about Miami? All right, hang on a second. Let's go put uh, some of the interns on this. Go look up flights. Go look up Green Bay flights. Go on Expedia and and then compare and contrast the cost differential, the itinerary differential between Green Bay and Jacksonville, Green Bay, Miami, Green Bay, and Tampa. And let's see if we can find the one that is most expensive, most, what would you say, inconvenient, and that will give us... So that's that's how they chose, at least in large part. (laughs) That's how they chose Jacksonville over any number of other cities that would have been available with an open stadium to host the game. 
I did not know as well. Domovsky uh, closes out his story. Packers have won six consecutive season openers. They're six and oh, and their last six season openers. That is the longest streak in franchise history, and uh, tied with the Chiefs for the longest active season opening winning streak in the National Football League. And then you you go on. God bless Rob Domovsky. During that streak, Rodgers has thrown 14 touchdown passes and only one interception. You can really find a stat for anything now in all of sports. And that, I think, is uh, an example of it right there. So the Packers playing the Jacksonville Saints in Jacksonville because Rodgers is bad in Florida, and it's uh, more expensive to fly to Jacksonville than other. And yet, you know, you know darn well, there's a really good chance there's going to be plenty more Packers fans than Saints fans in that facility come Sunday at kickoff. And we'll have it for you right here on the flagship WTMJ. Scott Warrison for Jeff. A few minutes left. We'll check in with Eric and Melissa, a preview of Wisconsin's afternoon news. In just a moment, live from Summerfest on WTMJ. OAR, Briggs and Stratton Big Backyard, 10 o'clock show tonight, Summerfest. WTMJ team is broadcasting live from Summerfest throughout the festival, and when our team is not on the air or hanging out with uh, the fans, they're grabbing a bite to eat at Major Goolsby's, which is located right near, speaking of which, the Briggs and Stratton Big Backyard, or, of course, you know the location downtown, right near the Deer District. WTMJ and Major Goolsby's come see us at the world's largest music festival. In fact, in fact, I can uh, let you know, I can faithfully testify that an order has been placed for some goodies at major goolsby's in the last couple of minutes as bill said and melissa barclay and everybody on wisconsin's afternoon news settle in for their show you get you get a tiny window eb to to snack Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i've taken up the window by (laughs) asking you to join me now (laughs) what do you uh, want (laughs) at at 245 What's up? So, you know, I'd be remiss if uh, I didn't uh, turn to you literally and figuratively and kind of just reflect if you wouldn't mind because I know, I don't know if if you had begun your TMJ career yet or Mm -hmm. you were still a fledgling reporter elsewhere, but uh, we spent a good portion of the the afternoon reflecting back on my my favorite question for so many things, the where were you when question, and... uh, where were you when? So I was uh, just getting my foot into the newsroom at WTMJ. wasn't working very often, but they were relying on me from time to time. Had a full-time job with a computer uh, software company. Was driving to work. Heard Jagler in Belmont mm-hmm. talking about it. And my immediate thought was, oh, man, I, I want to see this. It was so hard to comprehend. And that sounds voyeurism or whatever, but I just I couldn't comprehend it, and I didn't think I'd ever see it. I was like, oh, I... If I were home, I could see it and picture what what I'm hearing because I can't I can't picture these giant buildings with gaping holes and all this stuff. And I actually thought, believe it or not, I wasn't ever going to see it. That it wasn't going to be something that was shown again. And here, you know, of course, it was shown over and over enough where they asked not to show it anymore. So that was my initial thought. I, I was sent home from work, and then John Belmont called me mid afternoon and said. In his John Belmont voice, you know, Eric, uh, we, we're looking for some extra help. Can you come in every evening this week? Yada, yada, yada. I'm like, yeah. So I was in every every evening, 6P until whenever, as this thing continued to process. I mean, as you remember, it took several days, several weeks, months after that. 
Uh, so it was not a it was not a one and done type of situation for anyone, obviously, but in that newsroom, especially not. Yeah, it, was Belmont our news director then? Or was he just no, helping no, to, he was to just he, actually Dan Shelley, our news director, oh. was not in town. So oh. so Belmont was kind of just oh. making some calls, trying to help out to figure out how we could handle this because they stayed on. So like John and John. Belmont and Jagler stayed on through parts of Sykes. Sanciola stayed on with Reardon. Remember that name? Mark Reardon. They were on into the evening hours because there's all this confusion and fear. The gas situation, everyone lining up to get gas. Remember, that was a big thing. So it was such a... It's so hard to describe. And one thing that Jagler said in one of the pieces we ran earlier this week that I totally remember was just the fear. Just, Just the actual... Fear and, and not wanting to go places or being wasn't sure if, if we should go places. It, it, it reminds me, I mean, they're not, you can't really compare the two, but it reminds me a little bit of when that pandemic first oh. got rocking last March when it was like, boy, should I go to the store? Or like, who should go? I mean, I remember the streets were empty during that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it, it's because you are considerably older than I am. <laughs> I had not yet uh, begun my yes. professional mm-hmm. uh, career yet. I was, right. I was in college. And it was a Tuesday. Uh, some people were, were trying to remember. I said, a Wednesday? Was it a Thursday? Yeah. It was a Tuesday morning. And I remember it was a Tuesday morning because I was the, uh, the commissioner of our fantasy football team. And being a Tuesday morning, I was uh, at college, at Wisconsin Lutheran College. I was standing. We had a couple of computers in our student mm-hmm. union. Mm-hmm. And I was standing at a computer because I, I, I had our, uh, it wasn't computerized, you know, fantasy football now. Everybody does it it's all. different and, now. Oh, yeah. On your phone. I had yeah. physical pieces of paper, and I was checking the box score from the Monday night football game because some of us had players playing in that yeah, game. Yeah. So I needed to complete the tabulation because we were going to meet later that morning. And all right, here were the sure, winners from the sure. weekend's uh, round of games and things like that. And I'm standing there, and I remember uh, there were a couple of TVs over a uh, kind of like a bar area that we had in the union. And I remember looking over my left shoulder up at a monitor, and it was Channel 4, so it was mm-hmm. the Today Show. And uh, it was Katie Couric, and was that Lauer or was that Gumble? That was Lauer. I remember Couric especially. And it was uh, Lauer, yep. there were just the reports, like everybody remember, most people remember, of a plane that hit uh, one of the World Trade Center towers. and. Obviously, I thought, like many did, it was a small prop plane yeah, or, yeah, or a right. pilot maybe that had an emergency uh, small plane. And obviously, that wasn't the case. But I didn't have class on Tuesday and Thursdays that first semester of what would have been my junior year. And um, so from there, I went to my campus job. I worked in the business office at that mm-hmm, time, mm-hmm. working my campus job. And as I'm, as I'm uh, uh, sitting in there, we, we had WTMJ on. It's amazing how many people tell us they were listening yeah, to this radio crazy? station. We had WTMJ on listening to Jagler mm-hmm. and Belmont, and that's where I had heard of the second tower being hit. I remember sitting at my desk in the office when uh, the Pentagon was hit. I remember it was Belmont who was on the. I mean, it was the one yeah, who announced yeah. when the Pentagon was hit, and then, and then as the day went on, I mentioned the other day seeing the long lines of. Uh, of cars, uh, right. assuming gas prices were going to soar, and, and we needed to scoop up as much as we could before the price tag I just, got so high later that day. I remember the websites. I remember trying to get on USA Today, trying to get on these websites, and like the Internet was obviously a lot younger then, but just not even being able to get on them. They were all shut down. Like they, yeah, Nothing would be able to come up because so many people were trying to do that. And one of the things that I always think about, and I still think about it constantly, is so you think about what people did that day, You know, some of the wonderful, amazing 
loving things that some people did that day, whether it was at Ground Zero or elsewhere, or bringing down a plane to save other lives. I mean, the, the amazing things that happened on that day. And I often wonder, could I do that? Could you do that? Could you be the one that saves that person by either sacrificing yourself or being strong enough to know that you're putting yourself at risk to help someone else? And I want to say yes. I want to say that I would run up those stairs. I want to say I'd take that plane down. I'd want to say I'd run into that burning car that just crashed and save the person inside it. I just don't know. I, you know, and I, I, I hope so. I pray to God that I would be. But I just don't know. And I, when I hear these stories about what some of these people did, it is inspiring and unbelievable to me. I, I don't think anybody knows until the moment presents itself. Yeah. And I guarantee you, whether it was on Flight 93 or any of the other heroic moments and, and the heroism that were shown, many of those people did not know had they been asked on September 10th, 2001. Right. And then they, a truly tragic, dare I say, opportunity presented itself. And those... Uh, heroes became uh, just that. Mm -hmm. I imagine you'll be covering this uh, in some respects yes. in the next three hours Excellent. on Wisconsin's afternoon. Yeah, news. you mentioned uh, September 10th, so 20 years ago today. What was in the news? What were we worried about? What what happened then? Gene Miller did a great piece on this, so we're going to hear that during the 4 o'clock hour. Just what was in our consciousness? What was important to us on September 10th that quickly didn't become important? I, real quick, I remember, and Gene has this in his piece, which is good, but the only thing I remember were shark attacks. It yeah. was the summer of mm -hmm. shark attacks. Mm -hmm. So we'll do that. We'll hear much more from Jeff Wagner. He reminisced about it. I know you brought some of that. Gene Miller uh, and with Reitman, what that sounded like. We'll bring some of that audio back, plus much more on this vaccine mandate that the White House has now thrown out there. What does that mean? What's legal about it? What does it mean for some folks who are working from home? Do they have to get vaccinated? Still lots of questions in that. Okay, Wisconsin's afternoon news starts at 3 o'clock. But when we come back, I'm going to close out the show today the way I have closed out the shows that I've been privileged to do in conjunction with 9-11. Um, something that encapsulates and will bring back a lot of emotion and I think a lot of memories for you. That's next. Mere moments away. Scott Warris, WTMJ. Where were you when the world stopped turning? That's it. Wrapping things up on a Friday afternoon. Before Wisconsin's afternoon news takes over, I just want to take a moment, first of all, and thank everybody who um, shared their memories of where they were on September 11th, 2001. I realize that for many of you, that's a very personal story, a very personal uh, side of you, and to share it on a radio station with me means a great deal. Especially a thanks to longtime ABC News White House correspondent Ann Compton, who, of course, as uh, we remembered with her, was uh, on Air Force One and traveled with President Bush throughout uh, that remarkable day. And I appreciate her time. Very busy these days, and uh, she was kind enough to give us some time. I'll be back again on Monday night for WTMJ Nights. I hope you can join me at 6 o'clock. On the way out, though, we look back on the events, not just of September 11th, 2001, but of all the events that followed in the years in the decades since. Good morning, America. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer, and it's Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. But I can tell you what's the news down here in Washington, and it is Michael Jordan, probably the news all over the nation. He's given the biggest hint so far that he may return to the NBA as a player this season. C-100, 852.
something weird is going on. Yeah. We, the World Trade Center is on fire. This is at the World Trade Center. Obviously a major fire there, and there has been some sort of explosion. We don't fully know the details. American 11, if you hear about the center, I can please or acknowledge. The cockpit's not answering. Somebody stabbed in business class, and um, I think there's mates that we can't breathe. I, I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. Which flight are you on? I'm number three on flight 11. I just stand up like you descended there. So. United 93, verify 350. We hear some funny noises. We're trying to get him. United 93, Cleveland, if you hear the center right then. United 93, that traffic for you is 1 o'clock, 12 miles east on 370. That United 93, there is a report of black smoke in the, in the last position I gave you, 15 miles south of Johnstown. Um, and then you saw just a ring of fire, and I worked literally 60 feet away. It was the most horrific thing I've ever seen. We were able to get out, which is, uh, we're very lucky. In one sense, things will never be the same. Um, with the memories and the things that we both saw that day. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people... And the people who knocked these buildings down will hear all of us soon. Again, ABC News is reporting that Osama bin Laden has been killed. We uh, ask all of you to go to your ABC stations for further details on that situation. For those of you staying with us, we'll be back for the ninth inning. Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. I pray they will be comforted by a power greater than any of us. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. None of us will ever forget this day, yet we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. Good night, and God bless America.